It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Ben Dominich. I'm Ainsley Earhart. I'm Trey Gowdy, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, October 12th, 2022. Elisa Brady. A campaign issue hits home with a shooting outside a candidate's home. One of the main reasons why I got into this race was because I feel like much more needs to be done to take back our street. I'm Dave Anthony. Russia's leader is increasingly targeting civilians in Ukraine. He cannot defeat the will of the Ukrainian people. Can think that they're still trying it after eight months just gives you a sense of how pitiful their ability to make assessments are and how poorly their intelligence system truly is. And I'm Tommy Lahren. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The sprint to Election Day begins, but the gloves were already off in the New York governor's race. And on the day our Capitol was attacked, a day that led to the deaths of five brave police officers, Zeldin still voted to overturn the election. That ad trying to link Republican Congressman Lee Zeldin to President Trump and calling him extreme and dangerous on issues including abortion, while ads supporting Zeldin accused the Democratic incumbent of being corrupt, also calling out her time as lieutenant governor before Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned. We all know the Cuomo scandals, and right there with Cuomo was Kathy Hochul, the silent accomplice. New York is considered a deep blue state, and the latest Fox News power rankings put the governor's race in the solid D category, good news for Hochul. But Zeldin says the issues that got him into the race haven't changed, and now one of them, crime, has literally landed on his doorstep. My girls were definitely traumatized by the experience. While the congressman and his wife were out campaigning on Sunday, two teenagers were injured in a drive-by shooting outside his house on Long Island. His twin 16-year-old daughters were home at the time. On top of hearing the gunshots, hearing the screaming, they thought that these individuals who were near our front door were targeting them, were trying to get inside of the house. So they ran upstairs, they locked themselves in the bathroom, they called 911, and they had no idea what was going on outside of that bathroom door. So for them, at 16 years old, just sitting there on a Sunday afternoon doing their homework, and then all of this suddenly out of nowhere starts happening, it was a pretty traumatic experience for them. They responded very swiftly, very smartly. They instantly were upstairs, locked in the bathroom, calling 911, They were with me yesterday at the Columbus Day Parade in Manhattan, and they're next to me while I was answering some questions from some of the media that was there. And then one of the questions got directed at one of them. And this was the first time that they were doing an interview like this with media. And they just showed tremendous poise. They were articulate. It's very scary, and we didn't know if they were coming after us. They were genuine in explaining what they had experienced, what their emotions were, what they saw, what they felt. They've just been very strong, and I'm very grateful for my wife, and our family is very happy that this didn't come out any worse than it did. But uh, you know, coming home with crime scene tape around my own house, being told to be careful where I'm walking towards my front door because they want to make sure that I'm not stepping on blood was 
uh, a scene that when I left the house that morning, I obviously absolutely was not expecting to be returning home to. Had you been planning already to bring your daughters to the parade with you? Uh, as far as my schedule goes, oftentimes, as far as uh, my wife and daughters, a decision that they might make the night before or the morning of, uh, depending on what kind of work they have, how they're feeling. So just like uh, many other events, that was something for them to decide the night before or the morning of whether or not they would come with me. Uh, the night before, uh, this is Sunday night, after the shooting, they uh, wanted to stay in our bedroom. So the four of us stayed in the bedroom with my wife and I. And the next morning, we decided that we would have uh, the girls join us. And that's something that they absolutely wanted to. The police have said this shooting wasn't targeting your family, but it is the second violent incident during your run for governor after a man tried to stab you during a campaign speech. Um, fighting crime has been one of your themes in, in this election. Do these incidents help make that case? What do you hear on the campaign trail? Well, as I travel around the state, I hear from a lot of New Yorkers who are greatly concerned about rising crime. They want to see more support of men and women in law enforcement. They want some of these pro-criminal laws like Castle's bail to be rolled back. Uh, they want to see district attorneys actually doing their job. There's a lot of support out there as uh, it's being discussed, the option to remove the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, the constitutional authority that's given to a governor here in New York where we don't have recall elections. So one of the main reasons why I got into this race was because I feel like much more needs to be done to take back our streets. And whether it's cashless bail that needs to be overhauled to give judges discretion to weigh dangerousness or repealing the HALT Act because our corrections officers are being assaulted more. Uh, there's discovery law changes that need to be rolled back. There's a number of other lower profile laws that also are adversely impacting safety and security on our streets. And there's just a lot more high profile crimes that are taking place right now uh, in New York. I mean, just look at what's happened over the course of the last week or two. And that list has a feel as if you're going through a list of high profile crimes from the last year or two. So I will obviously you know, be sharing the mother killed last week in front of her three kids because of the cashless bail law, not keeping her husband detained. And the person was released the day before. And some of these other crimes that we're seeing, like a guy taking an axe out of his backpack at the McDonald's on Delancey Street in Lower Manhattan, swinging at tables and walls and customers and then instantly released due to cashless bail. I'll tell those stories. And I obviously you know, have a strong personal connection that dates back to being raised in a, a law enforcement household. My running mate uh, just retired with nearly 25 years of experience in the NYPD and was a commanding officer of the 70th Precinct in Brooklyn. Now, we're going to talk about all of this and uh, why we believe strongly that there's a need for this change to be able to take back our streets. Governor Kathy Hochul has said the shooting outside your house, um, when she was asked about it, she said it shows the need to work together to get guns off the streets. I will continue, as I've been on this journey as governor, to do everything we can to ensure 
that our streets are safe. That is one of my highest priorities. I know you've been critical of the state's new gun restrictions, which were changed recently after being struck down in court, and they're still being challenged in court. Um, Democrats outnumber Republicans by a lot in New York State, though. So is, is that a losing issue for you? Well, first off, there's still more that needs to be known about who the shooters were, what their motives were. Now, Kathy Hochul has called on American Express and MasterCard and Visa to flag all gun purchases as suspicious. And the argument that I've made when she first made that call that I would highlight here while we still wait for more information about the shooting that took place outside my home on Sunday afternoon, it probably did not start with a swipe of an American Express card. The person who was the shooter was probably not a concealed carry permit holder. Obviously, the person who did it wasn't a law-abiding Yorker looking to safely and securely carry a firearm solely for self-defense. So the problem was that the week after the United States Supreme Court overturned uh, New York's unconstitutional concealed carry law, she went so far in passing a new law where everyone woke up on a Friday morning and there was no bill. By that afternoon, they were having a bill signing and they were infringing all over First Amendment rights to trample all over Second Amendment rights. It was obvious that their new law was going to get overturned by the courts. Uh, It was just a matter of weeks. It was, in fact, unconstitutional. So what we should be doing is that everybody should be working together to go after criminals carrying illegal firearms, committing crime after crime after crime, and they're still out on the streets. What we shouldn't be doing is targeting law-abiding New Yorkers who want to safely and securely carry a firearm solely for self-defense. So that aspect of it has been one of the very biggest disconnects of this debate. New York already has the strictest gun control laws, and obviously that didn't stop a gang-related drive-by shooting at my own house just two days ago. Abortion is another issue where the governor could maybe argue that public opinion is with her, at least in New York. There have been ads running for months calling you extreme on the issue of abortion. How do you counter that? Well, here's her problem is that when New Yorkers woke up the day after the Dobbs decision, the law in New York was exactly the same as it was the day before. Nothing changed. A comma didn't change. And I'm not going to roll that back. But she's trying to create an issue. But that doesn't change the reality that in New York, they've codified far more than Roe. And it doesn't change the reality that I'm not going to roll that back. There's a less than 0% chance that the Democrats who control the New York State Assembly are going to send me a bill rolling that law back. So what we should be doing is actually talking about the issues that New Yorkers are saying are the most important issues to them. And the issues are focused around the breaking point of a New Yorker who's deciding whether or not to stay here. New York leads the entire nation in population loss. And the reason is, is because they feel like their wallet and their safety and their freedom, the quality of their kids' education are under attack. And they're looking at other states and they feel like their money will go further, they will feel safer, they will live life freer. We have to be acknowledging that and talking about what we are going to do to reverse it. And the fact that Kathy Hochul doesn't want to talk about the high cost of living, about cashless bail and DAs who are refusing to do their jobs, and what needs to get done to restore a balance in Albany to support our men and women in law enforcement more and make the streets of New York safer. The fact that she doesn't want to talk about her pay-to-play scandals 
and all the corruption, the way that she's raised tens of millions of dollars for her campaign. And it's very telling to the people in New York that she's trying to get away with just one cable debate for one hour at the very end of October, over a month after the start of absentee mail-in voting. We should be having multiple debates around the state about all of these issues, but instead she just wants to hide behind TV attack ads. And I believe that voters deserve to know where we stand on issues before they vote, not after. With a month left, do you change your strategy at all? Do you stay the course? I know it's an uphill battle in New York just by the numbers. It's been, I think, two decades since a Republican won a statewide race in New York. Do you stay the course? Do you change strategy? What do you do with these remaining weeks? I entered this race just over a year and a half ago, April 8th, 2021. My strategy today is exactly the same as it was when I first got into this race. The only thing that changed that was significant was who we were running against. When I got into this race, uh, Andrew Cuomo was still in the office. He then resigned. But the issues that we're talking about and the importance that New Yorkers put behind wanting to know what we're going to do to make life in New York more affordable, wanting to know what we're going to do to make the streets of New York safer, are actually even more of an issue now than they were then. So what we were talking about when we entered into this race in many respects are even more important than how important these issues were when we first got in. New York Republican Congressman and gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin, thank you so much for your time. Good luck with the campaign. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. This is Tommy Lahren with your Fox News commentary coming up. There's been a lot of this in Ukraine. That's in Donetsk, as Russia has carried out dozens of bombings the past few days, many times targeting residential areas. We don't know what to do or where to live. Let all the world see what they did here. There have been more than 100 casualties. Ukraine's ambassador, Sergei Kozlitsia, told the UN... By launching missile attacks on civilians, sleeping in their homes or rushing to work, children going to schools, Russia has proven once again that it is a terrorist state that must be deterred. Ukraine's president says they will not be intimidated. And in a video conference with President Biden and other G7 nation leaders, Volodymyr Zelensky asked for more air defense support. The G7 put out a statement condemning Russia's attacks as a war crime, and they'll hold Russia's leader accountable. Vladimir Putin calls the attacks retaliation for the bombing of a bridge to Crimea over the weekend. If attempts to carry out acts of terrorism on our territory continue, Russia's response will be harsh and its scale will correspond to that of the threat made against the Russian Federation. What Putin is doing, not a surprise to Fox News senior strategic analyst. For eight months, Putin and his generals have been trying to defeat the Ukraine army. And they have failed miserably at it. General Jack Keane is a retired four-star general, former vice chief of staff of the U.S. Army, and chairman of the Institute for the Study of War. Now they're resorting to defeat the Ukrainian people. The focus 
on the civilian population and also to focus on the energy sector to try to bring the electric grid down and, and also interrupt the gas supply so that the Ukrainian people, as winter approaches and it starts to embed itself in their society, that they suffer quite a bit. This is all an attempt by Putin to break the will of the Ukrainian people, something he has always adopted as an objective for his military force to break their will and force Zelensky to surrender as a result of that. Uh, General, you talked about doing this before winter. The invasion started during the last winter. Why would it have taken this long to go after these particular energy sectors, gas lines? Wouldn't you have assumed they would start with that right away back then? Yeah, well, then they were also attempting to defeat a deployed Ukrainian military. So the focus was clearly on that. A very distant secondary effort uh, was to deal with uh, the grid and the population itself. After all, they thought that once they introduced their artillery into the Donbass region and they had some success with it, they actually believed that they were going to be able to roll up the rest of the South and be able to uh, fulfill their occupation. But what happened to them is they took so many casualties. He knows that the forces he has deployed in Ukraine are insufficient to be able to dominate and take control of Ukraine's military and its territory. And that is why he's gone to a a mobilization. He actually wants to double the amount of forces in in Ukraine. It's around 200,000. And remember, he's had 25,000 killed, 65,000 wounded uh, during these eight months. And that's why he's trying to get these replacements in as quickly as he can. But when we analyze it, at the Institute for the Study of War, while numbers will always help, and you can't be dismissive of the fact that if you bring in, you double the amount of forces, there's going to be some benefit to that. But in terms of effectiveness as a military organization, we don't see it as being decisive. And Russia will have the same problems going forward with the Ukraine military that they're having now. Yeah, and and you, you talked about mobilization. If he brings all these people into service, some have no training whatsoever, or they had fought years ago. Many of them don't want to go. There have been people who've left the country, fled, don't want to be, and there have been protests. I mean, this hasn't helped the Russian leader in his own country. He seems less popular. Am I wrong or right? The Russian people obviously know now things are not going well in Ukraine. They may not know all the details that we do because they don't get a a daily narrative of it, but they know things aren't going well, and that's why this mobilization is taking place. But to go to Ukraine, a country that they actually have a relationship with, the people that they actually like, and they go there to vacation at times, they get away from Russia to go to Odessa or Crimea. And now to have the young people in Russia go to Ukraine to risk their life, to kill Ukrainians. There is no stomach for that. You're absolutely right. So this force is going to show up with no commitment to deal with this. Remember, in the very beginning, the Russian military was very deceptive with their units about why they were mobilizing. They were told they were being mobilized for training purposes. Many of them did not know they were going to war. And it's not surprising the pitiful results that came as a result of that. Now, there was a New York Times story that talked about how hardliners in Russia, they applaud 
what Vladimir Putin has done the last couple of days, the strategy of going after residential areas. One of them was quoted as, as, as saying that that we need to scare Ukrainians into submission. And really, in order to do that, you have to be really, really violent. Can Vladimir Putin do what he thinks he can do, scaring them? No. He cannot defeat the will of the Ukrainian people. And to think that they're still trying it after eight months just gives you a sense of how pitiful their ability to make assessments are and how poorly their intelligence system truly is. After all this time, if they don't understand the will of the Ukrainian people, they are fundamentally missing the basic point here. I spoke to the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States on Friday with her defense attache. I just wanted to know, you know, what they really wanted so I could help them publicly. We got to talking about nuclear weapons and the potential and, and the rest of it. I think that potential is, is relatively low, by the way. Uh, but the ambassador spoke up and said, you know, even if a nuclear weapon was used, in Ukraine, she said, we're not going to quit. We are going to continue to fight despite the casualties. We will not give up our land to the Russians. We will fight them to the end. Yeah, and Ukraine, that counteroffensive continues. They've taken back some villages, some towns in those regions that Russia annexed, claiming now as part of Russia, which is, makes kind of an odd twist. I mean, Vladimir Putin could claim now that Ukraine's invading him, oddly. Yeah, of course, that's what he wants people to think. I mean, he's certainly not discussing the fact that he actually suffered a military defeat. And in all four of those regions, as you noted, first of all, he doesn't own any single one of them completely. Number two, and two of them, the Ukrainians are taking territory from the Russians. And I can tell you for a fact, and it's well documented, that they're planning to conduct operations in the third in Saporizhia. Uh, where the famous nuclear plant is, and drive that operation all the way to the city of Mariupol, which they lost a few months ago. So, yes, they're planning even more significant counteroffensives, knowing full well that they've got the Russians back on their heels. Of course, the U.S. is a big part of this. We have been sending money. We have been sending weapons, ammunition. And again, there was a new call Tuesday from the president of Ukraine urging the U.S. and our allies to send air defenses all. Some have questioned if the U.S. is doing too much and the allies not enough. What do you think? Well, we're doing about 75 percent of it for sure, but we also have the most significant capacity by far. One of the things our audience likely doesn't understand is just how far the European military capability has atrophied. I mean, we're, we're talking about France only having two divisions. We're talking about uh, the Brits having one. The Germans have even less than that. And then the other militaries fall off as well. So the capacity isn't what it should be. But there is some fair criticism. The Germans and the French could considerably do more than what they're doing. And listen, so people understand, there's some that are saying, well, we're spending too much money. Uh, you know, we're up to around $17 billion or so. But a lot of that money is going to U.S. defense contractors to build these weapons. That's American jobs being executed someplace in the, in the United States, depending on the company. And that's not really been brought out very clearly.
Now, back to that statement from G7 leaders. It reaffirmed if Russia uses chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons, that would be met with severe consequences. President Biden told a Democratic fundraiser last week, Vladimir Putin is not joking. And we're at the closest point now to nuclear Armageddon since the 1962 Soviet Union Cuban Missile Crisis. General Keene's reaction? Uh, he's prone to exaggeration, and he has a tendency at times to dramatize things. I think he's at a fundraiser, and he, he wants their empathy and their support. I mean, if he was serious about Armageddon, then why is he not making a speech from the Oval Office about an existential threat to the United States that presidents have not faced in decades? And why is he not going to the Congress seeking legislative support, uh, which would be overwhelmingly bipartisan, likely no one would oppose it, in condemning Russia's threat of using nuclear weapons? On the surface of it, doesn't make any sense, but you have to take it seriously. And I think the administration, I'll give them at face value, they have indicated they have talked to the Russian leaders and told them there would be catastrophic consequences, and they have spelled out what they are. And I'll take that as what they have done. Then the Russians' issue is we know the United States has the capability to do that. And what we're likely talking about is an air and missile attack on Russian forces inside of Ukraine. They know we have that capability. They know NATO does. And the issue for them is, is Biden believable? Is he credible? So you think Vladimir Putin, if he were to use some sort of a nuclear weapon, would be calculating that President Biden wouldn't still want, would still want not to have direct conflict with him? That's correct. But I think his military generals would have a different viewpoint. They would likely come to the conclusion that the United States and NATO doesn't have any choice. Using a nuclear weapon inside of Europe uh, is something that the United States and NATO uh, could not ignore, because if they did, then Putin's got nuclear blackmail in his hip pocket. The pressure of Poland, the pressure of Baltic states, you know, to revive his entire campaign to get back the Soviet republics under the umbrella of the Russian Empire again. It would give him a hand to play, and I just don't think realistically that the United States and NATO could ever sit on their hands and ignore something like that. General Jack Keane, retired four-star general, former vice chief of staff of the U.S. Army, chairman of the Institute for the Study of War, and Fox News senior strategic analyst. Thank you, as always, for joining us. Yeah, I'm delighted to be with you and your audience. Appreciate it. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Rate and review the Fox News Rundown on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Tom, Tom Lahren. Lahren. What's on your mind? 
New Jersey will be the first state to mandate a climate change curriculum for K-12 students and said to be necessary to prepare for the green economy. Perhaps we should get students proficient at reading, writing, and arithmetic before demanding they learn about climate change. But furthermore, this all feels a lot more political than educational. Something tells me this climate change curriculum is more about leftist agenda pushing than actual science. If they want to teach students about the pitfalls of fossil fuels, they should also mention how many Americans rely on fossil fuels and how many well-paying jobs that industry fosters. And if we want to talk about the economic aspect of climate change, I hope these educators will mention canceling the Keystone Pipeline has done nothing to save the environment or lessen emissions, but it has made us more dependent on foreign energy sources. But I'm guessing that part won't be in the textbooks, huh? I'm Tommy Lahren, and you can listen to all of my hot takes at foxnewscommentary.com. Listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up to the minute news, go to foxnews.com. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.